Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16 is kind of where we're going to start. If you're not familiar with looking up Scripture, most of the Scripture will be on the, the screen behind me. And I, I thought the easiest thing to do today, I mean, it's Easter, uh, is just to talk about this question, what is Easter? When that, when that comes up to my mind, there are a number of things that just come flooding back into my mind. Memories from childhood of waking up early in the morning trying to find Easter baskets and what was going to be in those. I was, Christmas, I was always an early riser, like for the Santa. Like, I mean, I was like a 3.30, 4 o'clock riser, and my parents were like, please go back to sleep, you know. And then we trained them, and then when we wanted to sleep later, they were waking us up. Well, somehow I equated that to Easter as well. And I remember one Easter Sunday morning, I woke up like at 4 o'clock, and I was like, Easter bunny, and my parents were like, Go back to bed. Why, why, are, why are you doing this? And I have memories of family coming over and doing Easter egg hunts. And, you know, Easter is a holiday for many of us. A lot of great memories of holidays. Having meals together with friends and family. No school, spring break. All those things that go around Easter. Easter is also a story, right? It's a story of Jesus. And the story of Christ, of the Bible Uh, that said that he came as God, lived among us, lived a perfect life, and then gave himself as a sacrifice for us. He was gave himself willingly to the cross to be crucified, and then he died again and rose again on the third day. And people, you know, see that, they they, uh, commemorate that all in kind of different ways. I don't know if you saw an internet video this week. I do not recommend doing this. There was a youth group who the youth pastor to kind of commemorate Good Friday and Easter, had all of his students come up and spit on him as if he was Jesus. And then he gave him a butter knife to, like, cut his back. Like, it was, uh, it made national news of how dumb this was and how stupid this was. And, like, their real pastor had to get up and say, I don't know what he was thinking. Like, we don't do that. That's not us. But for some, it's just this story that we relive. And then the third thing, maybe for some of us, is it's just a religious observance. Easter means we go to church, we attend a service or a mass, and it's kind of one day a year that I really focus in on my faith, my spiritual side, and I say I'm going to you know, really focus on God today and observe a moment for Him. And what I want us to investigate today is this idea that Easter is more than just a holiday, more than a story, it's more than even a religious observance. What is it about what we celebrate today that is so unique and different? Why have so many people in history, and even today in our society around the world, why do so many people build their lives around the idea that this man named Jesus lived, died, and came back from the grave? Why is Easter so much more than maybe we've even ever imagined? So I want us to begin by just reading the account of the resurrection in Mark. And I love Mark. We did a study on Mark uh, last year, and I love Mark because Mark is just, he tells it like it is, like it is quick facts headlines it is like just getting the brief and in eight verses he like tells the whole story of the resurrection so mark 16 1 through 8 is where we're going to begin reading and it says this when the sabbath was passed mary magdalene mary the mother of james and salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went to the tomb and as they were saying to one another Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was very large. 
And before we continue reading, let me just give you some background on that because it wasn't odd that the stone was going to be moved. Because typically in Jewish culture, what happens is they bury somebody and for three days they seal him, seal that person, and then on the third day they'll come and move the stone away and prepare the body for like a year-long burial process. The grave wrappings, the, the, the spices, everything uh, to like prepare him. So they were actually coming going, who's going to move this stone for us? How's it going to get out of the way? And they were like, we're not strong enough to do this. None of this all the disciples ran away. They're not around anywhere. Who's going to do this for us? And they show up. And so it was a shock for them that the stone had already been moved. And then it says this. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled before the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What amazing conclusion to this story that Mark had been telling over the previous 15 chapters. Think about it. Right before this chapter, all the character in the stories, they had lost hope. I mean, this man that they had been following, this rabbi, the one that they thought was the Messiah, had been put to death. They were going to the grave to put the finishing touches on his death preparation, to say their final respects, to say goodbye, to say we're going back to life as it was. I guess he wasn't who we thought he was. And instead of finding the body in the tomb, they were greeted with this angelic announcement that Jesus had come back to life, that he was no longer dead. He was risen. The guards that were there at the tomb had fled in terror. The stone that was sealing had been rolled away. The body of Jesus was gone. And all that was left were his grave clothes and an angel proclaiming that he had risen from the dead. Their sorrow, disappointment, anger, contempt were immediately replaced with hope, excitement, and new possibilities. These women that came to the tomb to mourn Jesus were the first ones to get to celebrate his resurrection. But the story says their emotional roller coaster didn't end there. Did you see how it says it ended? Instead of just running away joyous, it says that that excitement quickly turned to fear. An overwhelming fear that caused them to begin to tremble with astonishment. Why did this fear overwhelm them? And why for a time did it seem to incapacitate them? To keep them from doing anything? I think it's because of one simple reason. Because at that very moment, they quickly realized that everything they knew before this moment had changed. Everything was different now. Like this man who they had seen die was no longer there. He was alive. It wasn't just that this man they loved and respected had come back to life, but it was a full realization of who this man was, that he was truly God in the flesh with power over death. And this realization broke over them like a 30-foot tidal wave. Everything is different now because of this. But I think this brings us to a question that we have to struggle with this morning. I think we've got to answer this before we move on. Is the question of this, did Jesus really come back from the grave? I mean, think about it for a minute, right? I mean, it's Easter. We've been celebrating this for 2,000 years 
the one time a year I get to wear color on Sunday morning instead of black. You know, it's like you bring out the pastels and nobody looks at you funny on Easter. But it's like this moment, and it's just become a rhythm of our life. It's become a rhythm of our culture and our society. Oh, yeah, today is the day. You know, we celebrate Easter. I have some friends in the city, and a couple of years ago we were over at their house for dinner a week or two before Easter, and, and they don't, they're not really involved in church. And he was saying, like, Easter's like a big deal for church, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty big deal for us. And he's like, now, I can't remember, is this, is this the birth or the death? Like, which one? He, he knew it was one of the two. He just knew it was part of the rhythm. Like, Christmas is one thing and Easter's another. And for many of us, maybe we've just gotten in this rhythm of going, yeah, we celebrate something today, but maybe we've never really asked our question, do we really believe what happened? Did it really happen? Did Jesus really come back from the grave? For Easter to have any real meaning, it actually had to happen. It can't just be a fairy tale or a made-up story or something we wish would have happened. For mankind to experience the beauty of salvation and the complete grace of God, Jesus actually had to come back from, to life. Why do we have to grapple with determining if we believe this or not? Because the first thing I want you to understand is it's not a matter of taste, preference, or opinion. It's not, a, it's not something we say, well, you know, I think he did, I, I don't know. You know. It's just a taste, preference, or opinion. But it's a matter of truth. It has to be based on my belief of what I, not what I wish would or wouldn't have happened. I have to ask, did it actually happen? Because the truth is, if he didn't come back from the dead, then even what we're doing here this morning is wasting our time. The Bible even says that. 1 Corinthians 15 says, you know, you, we should be pitied among all people if this didn't actually happen. If Jesus didn't come back from the grave, do you know what we should, we're, we're delusional. Like it just says you're crazy. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, if it's not true, we're wasting our time. But if he did come back from the dead, then it has eternal implications for every single life, no matter your beliefs. No matter your beliefs. For believers in here, for those who would say, yeah, I do believe, we don't need to just say, I believe because I've been told that. We must not only be able to say he has risen to one another, but we should be able to rationally explain why we place our faith in this seemingly irrational and supernatural event. And maybe if you're a skeptic in here this morning, you say, you know, I don't know if this actually happened. It's a nice story. Maybe it's like Paul Bunyan or Aesop's fables or just something, you know, that's been perpetuated over time. If you're a skeptic in here, you should at least be willing to investigate an event that even most secular scholars admit that something happened about 2,000 years ago that created this incredible start of a new religion and a massive shift in belief. Something happened 2,000 years ago that changed the perspective of the world, and it's at least worth investigating. And since the days of Jesus, people have typically fallen into one of two camps. Either they believe it or they don't. And so that, that's kind of come down into five typical explanations of how that happens. Five explanations of how, what, do, what do people think about what Jesus did. And the first thing would be this. Many people say, well, Jesus actually didn't die. And this kind of comes in two forms. Either someone who looked like Jesus was the one on the cross. He was an imposter. Like somebody who he took Jesus' place right before they came to arrest him. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus' closest friends were around him when he was arrested. A person that, was, that had been around him for three years was the one who actually identified him to the chief priest to be arrested. These guys that actually arrested him had been around him for, for months 
regularly. They knew what this guy looked like. And even on the cross, his mother is standing at the foot of the cross and saying, my son, and he's speaking to her. The idea that it was an imposter, that somebody decided to die for Jesus so that in three days he could pop out and say, hey, it wasn't me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. You guys couldn't keep me in the grave. It just doesn't make sense. One, they never found the other body, whoever that guy was, you know, Jesus 2.0. They didn't find him. And then, you know, what Jesus, I guess while he was doing that, he went around and like got some nails himself and like punctured his hands just to make it believable. The, the other theory is this, is that he didn't die. He actually didn't die on the cross. It's called the swoon theory. He just kind of passed out. And think about this for a minute. Jesus was on the cross. And he was, he was beaten with, literally with an inch of his life, bleeding. He was pierced. He was stabbed. He had a crown of thorns put on his head. He was suffocated to death. And then he was wrapped in these grave clothes that literally would have suffocated, put in a grave for three days. And he just happened to like, oh, that was a nice nap. Like, and woke back up. And not only did he wake back up, but he somehow rolled the stone away got past the guards, and then appeared to everybody else. And I actually personally think it takes more faith to believe that happened than he actually came back from the grave. The other explanation is this, is maybe it, Jesus' tomb really wasn't empty. Somehow, and this is a popular theory, people like, they actually went to the wrong grave. Like that grave they had actually hadn't never had anybody in it. And the stone, it was just a, a mistaken spot. And... Uh, this, again, doesn't make much sense because the, the chief priest went to the Roman authorities and said, hey, we think the disciples are going to try to come steal the body and act like something happened. Would you give us a guard to guard that? And so Pilate gave them a Roman guard to stand in front of the tomb. So they would have had to get it wrong. Uh, the, all the, the ladies who came that morning to the tomb would have had to get it wrong. And even Joseph of Arimathea, who actually gave the tomb for Jesus, he would have had to, like just had a blackout or something because if at some point they were all going to the wrong tomb and he'd been like, guys, hey, it's over here. Like this is where we put him over here. Somebody would have figured out that there wasn't the right tomb. And the truth is, it's not just that it wasn't the tomb, but many people in that day, even according to secular historians, historians reported seeing Jesus afterwards. Not just the empty tomb, but they reported seeing him afterwards. The third thing, the third uh, idea is this, is that maybe the disciples stole the body and hit it. And again, this is a kind of a, it sounds good, and they snuck in in the middle of the night and all this kind of stuff. And if you don't put any other context around it, maybe you could believe this. But you have to think, this would have been an immediate change of character for these guys. Just two days before, they went running scared as soon as Jesus was arrested. They scattered. They ran to the four corners as far as they could get away from Jesus. We don't even hear about it except for one of them at the crucifixion. Like, you don't, there's no story on Saturday of them, like, plotting together, what do we do? They're just all away. And even at that, even if they would have gotten together, again, they would have had to overcome a Roman guard to do this without anybody knowing. The fourth idea is maybe this. Maybe the disciples were just delusional and they made it all up. They let the fanfare die down and then they just started telling the story of Jesus coming back from the grave. They started this legend of something that they wanted to happen. And again, this would be believable if the story just died away. If the story just kind of became a, a legend. But the truth is, 
of all these disciples except for one, John, all the disciples were put to death for the belief that Jesus had come back from the grave. Not one of them ever recanted and said, you know what, we're all lying. Well, give it up. It doesn't make, you know, we, we all did this. We just, it's a grand lie. They all, di- they all died for this belief. It cost them everything. And not one of them recanted or called it a sham. And I don't think they were delusional, but that they were dedicated to this truth. Which leads us to the fifth one, that Jesus actually died on the cross and then rose from the dead. There are Christian and non-Christian sources that point to this. There are historical accounts of people embracing the resurrection. And even many modern-day scholars try to debunk the truth of the resurrection. And many end up becoming believers of it themselves as they investigate. And the thing is this. I want to be very clear this morning. As much as I believe that fifth idea that Jesus actually died and rose from the grave, I want to be clear this morning. I can't prove the resurrection actually happened. I don't hold definitive proof right here in my hands or on my iPad that I can pop up and say, I have finally figured it out. And I can solve this. I don't hold definitive proof. But what I can tell you is this. To believe that Jesus came back from the dead in the early days and even today takes one thing. It takes faith. It takes faith. Faith is simply this. Faith is a submission of my mind, my heart, and my soul to believe that something that I don't fully understand or comprehend. It's a willingness to suspend my belief to embrace an unprovable but knowable belief. Without a willingness to embrace faith, you and I will never believe the resurrection. We'll never live out the power of the resurrection. This has to be the case if we're dealing with the supernatural God. Think about this for the minute. If everything God did was explainable, then he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be beyond us. He wouldn't be supernatural. That's what makes him God, is that he can do things beyond our understanding. And too often we think faith is just this passive way of living. Like, all right, if I place my faith in something, that means I don't have any control anymore. I don't have any say. I just have to trust God, and whatever he tells me to do, i got to go do it. If he tells me to go do this or sell this or move somewhere I don't want to move, I just got to do it. It's just this passive idea that I've given up complete control of my life. But I want you to see this. Faith is not passive at all. Faith instead is an active submission of my mind to believe that God exists. To actually use my mind to investigate the truths of Christ. One of the things that I love about our faith family here at New City is we value questions. We value people who have questions and don't understand and say, I want to go deeper. I I want to understand this better. Can you help me wrestle with this? We're not a church that pushes that away or we would ever use the term, well, God said it, just believe it. We, we understand that faith is an active investigation. It's together struggling with truth and learning how that truth impacts our life. It's also a submission of my heart that believe that God is good and wants good for me. That he, want, he is actually actively interjecting himself into my life. He is pushing himself in my life and bringing good into my life. I remember when our kids began to become teenagers, especially my daughter, Natalie. Uh, Natalie was like a daddy's girl growing up until like puberty hit. And then I was like, you know, ooh, gross, you're a man. You know, and like she, she loved Katie at that point. And, and like I had to find ways to like interject myself in her life and remind her that I'm good and actually want good for her and you know it's just it was one of those times and if you've been a dad with a teenage girl you know it's just a natural thing of having to remind them 
no, I want good for you. It's, and we were talking about it the other day. I, she would be like, well, you just never understood why I cried. And I'm like, no, I still don't understand why you cry, but I can accept it better. And I, I was like asking you that because I wanted good for you. And so God, we have to remind ourselves sometimes that God's not out to get us. He's not conspiring against us. He's interjecting himself into our life and bringing good into our life. But faith is also this act of submission of my soul to believe that the longing and desires I have can only be satisfied with a restored relationship with God. And that comes through intimacy. That comes through connecting my life deeply with Him. Opening up. Not trying to hide part of who I am. Not trying to keep part of who I am away. But actually allowing God to come in and know me for who I am. One of the ways that we'll talk about this minute of the week, we experience hope with God and peace with God is knowing that it's okay. God is okay with who I am and where I am right now. doesn't mean that I'm not going to journey and not going to grow in my faith, but it does mean I don't have to do something now to prove myself to God. God has drawn near to me, and he can have intimacy with us now. So it's this act of submission of my heart, mind, and soul. So if this is true, what then are the implications of the resurrection? If we can take this step of faith, and believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again. It's an actual fact that we can put faith in, that he was God in the flesh, lived a sinless life, willingly sacrificed, then overcame the penalty and power of sin. What does this imply for our lives? When it means that he should be Lord of our lives. Every word and deed of Jesus is a direct reflection of the character of God. We should study and submit ourselves to him. If he actually came back, if this is a man, God-man, who overcame the grave and has power over death, this is the person I want to follow. This is the one I want to submit my life to and allow to be Lord of my life. But it's not just this blind following. It also means that we get to live this restored life. Jesus' death paid the penalty for all sin and our guilt is removed. Guilt is not part of our life anymore. It doesn't drain our hope away. I grew up in, uh, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Georgia, and we had this water park there called Whitewater where you could go. It was like a, you'd go and swim, and uh, my brother and I, we had season passes, and after about two or three visits, you got bored, and so you found different weird things to do to entertain yourself. And uh, we would, sometimes they had this big wave pool, and, like, we would swim up behind people in these little inner tubes and, like, come up behind them and scare them and stuff like that. And we got thrown out a couple times for that. And then uh, they had this other thing called a lazy river where people would get on these floats and they'd just float around, you know, with the stream. And uh, sometimes these were people who maybe didn't know how to swim well or didn't like the water, getting wet and stuff like that. And so we thought it'd be fun to swim up underneath and, like, without them knowing, pull the plug on the float. And uh, I can just see you guys all losing respect for me right now. Like, why are you? And uh, the fun part was not just doing that because it wouldn't, like, deflate right away. It was like a slow burn. And, like, slowly they would begin to sink. And they're, like, trying to figure out what's going on. And then they would get so deep into the float that they couldn't get out. And it was just, like, by the end of the day, one day we saw there were, like, 50 or 60 of these deflated floats all around the lazy river. And they were probably doing quality control on them, trying to figure out what was going on. But sometimes we do this in our own lives with the hope in our lives is like that float. And we allow guilt to come and drain the air that sustains us, that moves us through life. And we start to think, I'm not good enough. And we pull the plug and this faith and this beautiful restorative thing that God has done in our life, we let the air out of. And say it's not enough. I still feel guilty. 
And I want you to hear, if you don't hear anything else this morning, the resurrection restores you. It takes away guilt and shame. When we place our faith in Christ, when that act of faith becomes alive in our life, I am not living in deficit to God. You're not, because you came on Sunday morning, you're not making something up to God this morning. Because you like get up and pray in the morning, you're not making something up to God. Because you give money, you're not making up something to God. We do those things because we're in intimacy with God. We are not in deficit to God. We are restored. Which then gives us the next thing, which is freedom. Jesus' resurrection overcame this power of sin. We have this no longer to appease God, to be in deficit with God. We now get to move forward with God. I think sometimes we look at religion and Easter and this idea of submitting ourselves to God as a stop point in our life. Like, all right, if I do this, I have to stop doing all this stuff. There are things I can't do anymore. And we look at following God as restrictions in our life and boxing ourselves in. And like eventually by the end of our lives, we just feel like we're just going to be constrained and can't do anything. And what I want you to hear is this, is actually the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and this implication is it's not a restraining. God is actually taking away the restraints and the barriers in your life. He's allowing you to live with the most pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope that you can imagine. He's allowing you to embrace the desires of your heart as they line up with his desires and they're coming together and they're, they're aligned like they were supposed to. That's what freedom is. It's living in alignment with God. If you've been around our church, we've had a friend of mine come a couple times. His name is Dr. Max. He's a chiropractor. He's a good friend of ours. A number of our people in church go to see him. And uh, Katie and I saw him last week and it had been a while. And the first thing he said was like, man, you're out of alignment. And I was like, I could feel like, you know, my neck. I was just sore everywhere. And then he does whatever he does. I'm not sure. I, I think it's a little black magic or something. <laughs> and he has these machines and stuff. But then he's like, he just grabs me and someone just like, you know, and it's like, wow. Like all of a sudden I can, like my, I can feel it all in my fingers and my toes. This alignment that just came right back and you could feel it everywhere. That's what the freedom in Christ is like. It is a living in alignment where our desires, his desires, what he wants for us, we realize it's good and they all line up and we start walking in freedom, not in restraints. And again, if you can take maybe one thing else away this morning is this. Don't view the power of the resurrection. Don't view Christianity as handcuffs holding you away from the fun things of this world. It is the freedom to step out and embrace what God desires us to and the way God wants us to so that we can live that out, which then brings us to the next implication is that you and I have hope in our lives. Jesus' power in our life is now and forever. It allows us to live in contentment in this moment and in this day and to get the most out of this day and to look forward to tomorrow and tomorrow, and even the day, the time after our life ends. Hope is contentment. Contentment isn't, isn't being lazy, isn't just sitting back like on that float. It's actually taking each day and saying, what can I get out of today in my relationship with God? In this journey with God, what can I squeeze out of today? That's being content. It's not looking back at what was, it's not looking forward at what might be. It is saying I have today with God and what can I get out of today? Living in the moment, taking every bit of it. And this all comes in the last way that there's an implication is to realize this is a gift. This is a gift 
to you and me. This power is personally available to all mankind through redemption. It is simply to be received, simply to be taken in. I want you to understand this. What Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago when he suffered and died and gave his life up, and that time that he spent from the cross in the grave and sacrificing his life, being literally dead in the grave and then coming back to life, he was wrapping a gift for you and I putting paper on it, putting a bow on it, and presenting this to you. And what he was presenting is the idea of redemption. And we maybe hear that word and we think about, well, somebody redeems themselves, like they made a mistake and next time they get a shot at it, they don't make a mistake. Uh, You know, we see that in sports all the time. Guy strikes out with the bases loaded, next time up, he gets a hit. You know, misses the winning jump shot, next time he makes it, he redeemed himself. And so when we hear the word redemption, maybe we think like, all right, I messed up with God last time, but it's Easter and and we're hearing this message and I'm going to live better this year. I'm going to redeem myself this year. That's not what the gift is. The gift is not a second chance. The gift is a new life. A new life. Given to you with full capacity, full abilities, maxed out, whatever you want to accomplish, God. It may not be that if you want to be, again, I've said before, I dreamed up how Loved basketball growing up. I wanted to be an NBA player. I did not have the skills within me to do that. That did not happen. It will never happen. But here's what I can say. My life has the opportunity to be maxed out as how God made me, what God designed me for. It is a gift. But this gift simply has to be received and opened. To be the bow opened, the box, the paper taken off the box opened and to reach in and grab it and say, God, your work on the cross, you're overcoming the power with the power of the resurrection, the lordship, the restoration, the freedom, and the hope. I'm going to take it out and I'm going to start to use it, to start to live by it, to start to let it play out in my life. If the resurrection is true and Jesus is who he said he is, then for those of us that embrace the story of the savior of the story, then you and I get to experience what many people call this beautiful exchange. A beautiful exchange. Exchanging death for life. Exchanging fear for hope. Uncertainty for peace. Guilt for grace. Despair for joy. The great exchange isn't just like a store exchange where I take something back and get something to replace it. It involves our entire life. All of our life. Not just one piece but all of it. And my question for you today is this. Will you allow this story to impact your life by embracing the restoring and redeeming nature of Jesus' resurrection? Would you embrace by faith this picture that God isn't out to condemn you or to separate you from, uh, from fun things, but he is there to separate you from sin that is bringing you pain, punishment, and guilt? Would you embrace by faith the picture that God isn't out to control you but to set you free to walk in the way that you were originally created, now free from pain and the penalty of sin, and instead walking in the light of God's truth and wisdom. And finally, would you embrace by faith the picture that God isn't out to conspire against you, but to journey with you, that as you open up to him and share your deepest longings, hurts, and hopes, he doesn't use those against you, but instead he takes those, redeems them and uses them to bring you and I more pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope than you can ever imagine.
this resurrection will work on you to create in you this beautiful masterpiece that will display the grace of God to those around you and to help you experience the grace of God like never before. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? We're going to close with a song, and as our band comes up to sing, I just want to have give you a moment to think about maybe some of these truths this morning. In the stillness and quietness of this moment, maybe for the first time you consider the reality of the resurrection. Maybe you've always thought of it as simply a story or never even put much thought into it. But this morning, would you consider that it is true? Would you investigate that? Even as a skeptic, maybe, would you say, I'm willing to take a look at it, that there was a man who claimed to be God, who came to this earth and overcame death, and what that means for me? But maybe you believe that, and maybe you've, in believing it, though, you've just relegated it to a religious observance or a holiday or a story you remember and you've never let it bring out true implications in your life. Would you allow the truth of the resurrection this morning to set you free, to restore you, to let guilt move aside? Would you take just a moment this morning in this quiet and still in this moment, reflect and have a moment to connect with God? Father, it is in these moments that we, I think we truly understand the realities of life. Sometimes we come to church and think we're disconnecting from reality and just trying to find something to help us back in the real world. But I believe these are the moments we find the real world, the reality of your resurrection, the reality of the power that it has in our life. Would you help us to understand that there is nothing bigger than Christ in our lives? There's nothing that's more meaningful. There's more, nothing that carries more depth. There's nothing that carries more implications and realities than the fact that there was a man who was God in the flesh who lived among us on this earth, died for us, overcame death, and we celebrate that today. Would you let us live in this truth that in Christ alone, our life is complete.